Uh, part two, Alex. Wood, intending to make a drum when he'd been captured, and all the rest of the story as it had come down from his mother Kizzy. In the pattern of slaving at the time, when the boy George got to be about 12 years of age, he now was apprenticed to an old slave to learn a useful occupation. In his case, the old slave was Uncle Bingo, who handled the master's fighting gamecocks. The fighting of gamecocks in the antebellum South was a sport comparable in popularity to say the basketball or football or baseball among us today. And this young boy, it seems, together with whatever Uncle Mingo was able to teach him, seemed to have a kind of innate green thumb-like ability for this sport to the degree that by the time he was in his mid-teens, he had been given by others involved in the sport the nickname that would stick indelibly to him for the rest of his long life, and that was Chicken George. When Chicken George got to be about 18, he met the young slave woman with whom he later would mate. Her name was Matilda. And in time, Matilda was going to give birth to eight children. And now it was Chicken George in the role of father who set into motion what was later going to become a rigid family tradition that every time one of those infants was born, Chicken George, in a formal way, would gather the family within the slave cabin. He would sit with the new infant on his lap and speaking ostensibly to the infant, but actually to his older audience, he would tell the story which had come down from his mother Kizzy. And for that eventual eight children of Chicken George and Matilda, it was something most unusual in the knowledge of slave children. And that was direct knowledge of a great-grandfather, this same African who said his name was Kinte, who called a river Cambivolongo, a guitar Ko, who said that he had been chopping wood to make a drum when he was captured, and all the rest of the story that had come down from Kizzy to her son. As fate would have it, those children grew up and took mates and had children in the way that things happened. The fourth child of Chicken George and Matilda, Tom, would become a blacksmith. He was sold away in his latter teens to a man whose name was Murray, who had a tobacco plantation in Alamance County, North Carolina. And it was on that plantation that Tom, the blacksmith, in time met and mated with a young slave woman whose name was Irene. She was half black, half Cherokee Indian. She came from the Edwin Holt plantation in another section of Alamance County, North Carolina. And in time, also Irene was going to give birth to eight children. And now it was Tom, the blacksmith in the father role, who carried on the tradition begun by his father that every time one of those children was born, he too would gather the family in a formal way within the slave cabin, and he would sit with the new infant on his lap and tell the story that had come down, and for the second set of eight children, hearing this story, it was something all but unheard of in the knowledge of slave children on the average, and that was direct knowledge of a great-great-grandfather, this same African, who said his name was Kinte, who called a kwakwa guitar ko, who called a river Kambi bolongo, who said that he had been chopping wood to make a drum when he'd been captured and the rest of the story as it had come down. As things would turn out, 
of that second set of eight children hearing about this African great-great-grandfather, the youngest was a little girl whose name was Cynthia. And as fate was further to have it, Cynthia was to become my maternal grandma. And I told you at the outset how I grew up in my grandma's home in Little Henning, Tennessee, and she pumped that story into me as if it were plasma. It was by all odds the most precious thing in her life, the story of the family which had come down across the generations in the manner I have described. I stayed around grandma's until I was around in my early teens, by which time I had two younger brothers, George and Julius. Our father by this time had finished getting his master's degree at Cornell University in agriculture, and he had begun to teach at small black land grant colleges about the South, and we were kind of faculty brats here or there wherever he was teaching. And then when World War II came along, I, the oldest of the three sons, was one of the many, many young men who thought that if I could hurry up and get into the U.S. Coast Guard, an organization of which I had recently heard, that maybe I could spend the war walking the coast somewhere. And I managed to get into it, <clears throat> and to my great shock, rather suddenly discovered myself on an ammunition ship in the Southwest Pacific. It was not at all what I'd had in mind. And when I look back on it now, however, it seems to have been part of a meant-to-be series of incidents that one day I would write a book called Roots. Going back, the series of incidents began with Grandma having told me that story in the first place and the other elderly ladies of the family. And then the next thing would be, as I look back upon it, if I was one day to write a book, obviously I had to become a writer, something I had never thought about. It was not the kind of thing to which one aspired if one was brought up in Little Henning, Tennessee and whatnot. The way I got to be a writer was completely accidental, looked at in one aspect, and then from another aspect, it seems to me also to have been intended that these things would happen. We would be at sea about sometimes as much as two months at the time. The biggest problem we had was not the enemy. It was just sheer boredom of evenings when your day's work was done and there you were out there in the middle of the Southwest Pacific with nothing to do at night. There was a running poker game, a running crap game and other things, and I didn't do either of those things very well, and it just sort of happened. I became a cook on the ship, and in the evenings, after I had washed my pots and pans from the evening meal, I would generally go down in the hold of the ship and get my most precious possession, a portable typewriter I had learned in high school to type. And I would write letters. I just began writing letters to all my ex-schoolmates, uh, even teachers, anybody I would write letters to. And every, and every now and then, ships would come out to us, bringing mail to us from home, and they would take our mail and take it ashore where it would be mailed. And once I got things going pretty well, every mail call that we had, I would get 40, 50 letters at a time. I rather swiftly got imaged on the ship as its most prolific correspondent. Now this was playing directly into a series of things that would lead into my becoming a writer one day way down the line from there. Being at sea as long as we were and as far away from home as we were, 
When we finally would get ashore, you generally some fort in Australia or New Zealand, a bunch of lusty young sailors that we were, and some fairly lusty older ones as well, I don't really have to tell you what was our topmost priority when we got ashore. We would go and we would do the best we could, and then pretty soon... And then pretty soon we'd be back out at sea. And now there would be all these fellas who were smitten with the memory of some young lady they'd left ashore. And girls have a way of getting all the more lissom and voluptuous in your mind the longer you stay at sea. And it got to be that some of my buddies, who were generally what we might call, using a colloquialism, the great rapper types, the very vocal types, they were not awfully hot on paper, however, began to come around and ask me, because they knew I wrote so many letters, if I would help them write a letter to some girl or other. And I was, of course, glad to do it if I could. And so they set up a practice, just accidentally it began to happen in the ways that things can happen in the service, where each evening, at just about this time, I would sit at a mess table in the mess deck with a stack of three-by-five cards in front of me, and my clients would literally line up and as they got to me, one by one, I would interview them about this girl. I said, okay, now what's she look like? Hair, eyes, mouth, nose, whatnot. What did you say to her? Where did you go with her? What do you want to say to her now? Is there anything special such as that? And whatever he told me, I would reduce to tight little notes on an index card. And then later as I got a chance, I'd take each of these cards with his and her name on it. And using that specific information about that young lady, I would write a personalized sort of love letter for him to copy in his own handwriting. And it would, it would be something like, say, almost all my clients were white. If the guy told me, as many did, the girl's hair was blonde, well, out there in the middle of the ocean, I'd get in some fit of creativity and come up with something like, your hair is like the moonlight reflected on the rippling waves, or stuff like that. <laughs> And these girls would get these letters, and I will never forget one day and night that would prove very pivotal in my being a writer this night. We had been at sea a little over two months, during which time three batches of mail had gone off our ship ashore so that each of my client's girls had had these many letters. And we got in, after two months at sea, into the city of Brisbane, Australia. Liberty was declared that evening at 6. Everyone who had liberty just flew ashore. By midnight, most of them had come wobbling, stumbling back to the ship, having accomplished the most they had been able on such short notice, which was to get drunk. And they were just alcoholically imbibed. They were just plain drunk. But then, with my clients, it was almost as if a script had been written. Around 1 in the morning, they began to come back individually, and each of them, before a steadily enlarging and increasingly awestruck audience, were describing in the graphic, graphic ways that only young sailors can, how when he got to that young lady behind these letters I had written for him, that he just met with astounding results practically on the spot. And I... <laughs> And I became heroic that night on that ship. 
And I can tell you the truth that for the rest of World War II, I never fought a soul. All I did was write love letters. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Alex, Alex Haley. And in this 1977 Search for Roots, we will continue in the next episode, part three.